0: Hello and welcome, esteemed gamers, friends, listeners. It is Layton here from Leighton Night with Brian Wecht, and I just wanted to tell you that if you're looking to get even more podcast goodness to put in your face, then we've got just the thing for you, which is the official Leighton Night Patreon. We have several tiers where you can get access to recommendation lists for every episode, listen to Patreon-exclusive mini-sodes, get into the super awesome fan Discord, and watch videos like Brian's songwriting process for jingles on the show, or me taking apart and cleaning my mechanical keyboards. It's really fun and cool, and we super appreciate your support. It's neat. We would love to see you there. Without any further ado, here's the episode. Enjoy. Love you. Bye.
1: I first found out about Tupperware Remix Party at your show at MAGFest, which I was somewhere in the crowd. It was either 2014 or 2015 because I was a fetus. <laughs> that was like one year after my YouTube channel started.
2: Oh, really? Wow.
1: Yeah. I guess I'm kind of dating myself, but not like it's not already out there. But. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, man, that was when I first heard them, and it was weird at first because I'm not a Daft Punk guy. Mm -hmm. So like the the like vocoder on every song, Mm -hmm. like it just kind of (laughs) didn't sit with me at first. Yeah, I I hope they don't hate me for saying that.
2: No, 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 no. you're not saying they're bad. You're just saying it's not your thing.
1: Yeah, no, I mean, but man, I fell in love with their bassist and their guitarist. Oh,
2: Meouch and Phobos. I mean, they're shredders. There's no two ways about it. Like those guys are. Incredible. By the way, actually, before I continue, everybody, Leighton is dealing with a pet emergency right now. She's gonna join us in a little bit. So for right now, you just got me and Jonathan. Yeah. So when you meet them in person, they're just like these very sweet, modest, you know, Canadian, East Coast Canadian guys. And yeah, you know, and then they pick up an instrument and you're like, what the fuck is happening? (laughs) It's it's unreal. We've been playing with them for five, six years now, a long time every time it just keeps getting better and better and better and they always surprise me all four of them just how adept and talented they are
1: yeah those guys are killer
2: that magfest show that was certainly the first time we did like a really big show with nsp and certainly the first really big show we did with torp that was that was kind of a real transitional stage for us
1: yeah i remember it was pretty early like the, it was pretty new yeah. Like it was
2: before you started recording with them, I think. Uh, For sure. We maybe we had been we had done like a track or Danny had guessed it on the hit or yeah, yeah. I I did like did I do something on that too? I guess. Um, so it might have been after the hit. I think honestly, that Magfest show was like proof of concept. Like we can do this together on stage. Yeah. And oh, yeah, shit. I remember this. So we were because Magfest is in. I think it's technically in Maryland. It's, I was at the Gaylord Hotel. so we had to find like a rehearsal space in dC. to like play the tunes first, because we didn't live in the same place. I lived at the time in England. Danny lived here in L.A. Oh, wow. Twerp lived in Toronto. We were never <laughs> in the same place. Actually, I remember this. so he showed up. I didn't even bring a keyboard with me because I was like, oh, I'll just buy one there." I didn't want to transport it, you know, from England. yeah. So I went to a guitar center bought, like, I'm looking at it right now, a little shitty little four-octave Yamaha. That's still the thing I perform on, right? Oh, Um, yeah. Yeah, because I don't need anything that, you know, wild. like. And I bought this thing, got a shitty case at a discount that had a broken lock, and then we rented this, like, a rehearsal space in in D.C., and the second time we went, all the power had shut off. There was just a random blackout. Oh, man. We'd never really played together before. We knew we could rely on each other, but, you know, you got to play together to really make it work. And we found this random place in DC, managed to rehearse there a couple times and then put on what I remember as being a really fun show.
1: Yeah, definitely. I have a strange relationship with conventions. I'm kind of a hermit. <laughs> uh-huh. uh-huh. I do this thing where like I I feel obligated to go out and perform and uh uh-huh you know like meet with fans and and get on stage and like obviously like I don't need to tell any other musician that like performing on stage live there's nothing really that you can compare it to like it's pretty surreal and exhilarating experience yeah but I did some conventions they were great I did MomoCon in Georgia which was amazing I also did MetroCon in Florida 2 years in a mm-hmm. row
2: as a performer, like you were performing. Right? Yes,
1: yes. All of these were as performers. Great people, great shows. I performed there with my very good friend, Caleb Hiles. It was great. But I do this thing where like, I, I feel obligated to do these things for my career. And our culture is very much like prioritizes and validates this whole shaking hands and smiling and, and yes. putting on a show kind of thing. And very
2: much. I just don't know if it's healthy. No, I can tell you it's not healthy <laughs> like from a variety of perspectives. Yeah. My wife kind of was really
1: instrumental in like kind of helping me realize how much I was like projecting mm-hmm. kind of like a not very genuine version of myself when I would go out and like perform.
2: You mean like a, a too like cheerful or, or something like that? What, what, how was how it not genuine? I'm just such a pajama
1: cynical, <laughs> like, uh, uh-huh. I, you know, I hate like the whole introvert, extrovert, like dichotomy thing, Mm -hmm. but like I read somewhere that there's like this gray area where you have like introverts that flip into extrovertedness to like compensate. Mm -hmm. I feel like I do that a lot where like when the camera turns on or when I'm in front of people, I like switch into this different performance people person mode. And then as soon as it's over i just like revert to being like this slug
2: (laughs) uh (laughs) my wife rachel is kind of like that too like she is a very very quiet like stay at home and read kind of person she's an improv comedian and then when she's on stage she just like explodes yeah. In the best possible way. And she like turns it on and she is the most like outgoing, you know, confident. Not that she's not confident normally, but, you know, she's normally very quiet and just kind of wants to, you know, chill on stage. It's a completely different person. So she has described herself to me as a extroverted introvert Yeah, where most of the time, just quiet, do do a thing, don't really interact, lots of me time. And then when you need to turn it on, turn it on. Yeah. As like a big air
1: quotes, like public figure, uh, <laughs> influencer. Ugh,
2: the worst word.
1: Like it's, it's just hard for me to like rationalize grappling with some abstract sense of self while I'm also trying to
2: be financially viable in the right. clickbait industry. Totally. So if you could never perform live again, would you do that? Like if someone said you can have the career you want, just make all your shit, you know, the way you want to make it, blah, 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 and you'll be okay financially if you just never do another live performance. Is that something you would be like, yeah, sign me up? The caveat with that question is
1: with my current cover song career or with original songs? You know what I mean? Yeah. Man, like I used to be like a jazz drummer. Mm-hmm. I took a whole bunch of piano lessons, and I love playing keyboard. But I I never get to do that. That's how I get off playing live keyboard, like just jamming out to something funky. That would be what I would love to perform for the rest of my life hmm. to a live audience. But I'm never gonna get to do that because unless you're like Jacob Collier or right. you know, <laughs> like a Snarky
2: Puppy. Oh. By the way, to those of you listening, if you have not heard Snarky Puppy. Literally, turn this off right now and go listen to Snarky Puppy. We've done a couple things with one of their uh, sax players, Bob Reynolds. Really? Yeah. I mean, this guy is just like next level player, and he's been on a couple NSP. He was on a Starbomb thing on the most recent Starbomb album, and also when we have a song with horns called Smooth Talking, where he's one of the horn players on that.
1: Yeah, well, because I figure most of them are like session
2: players. Oh, yeah, 100%. I mean, all those guys, like, first of all, there's like 40 people in the band or something. Yeah. And, you know, they all have amazing, I think, careers outside
1: that group, too. Without sounding like hoity-toity, like, it's hard to describe to people who aren't musicians why Snarky Puppy is good.
2: Yeah, that's true. Because, like, when you describe it, you're like, okay, it's a huge group of people, you know, most of which are, are basically jazz musicians who just kind of get together and rock. You're like, well, does that sound good? Even jazz. Yeah. <laughs> Take what I just
1: said, but replace Snarky Puppy with jazz.
2: Yeah. This is something that I think about a lot, actually. First of all, I like mainly up through end of high school, mainly classical uh, with a little. I mean, I played in like high school jazz bands, but not good ones, you know, not like legit jazz stuff. It was like reading charts and no one knew how to improvise. I actually had a summer camp that had a legit jazz program. It wasn't like a music camp. It was just a sleepaway camp that had an incredible uh, jazz guy who was like the resident musician. And so I did some band stuff there. And then in college, it was like all jazz. Like pretty much everything I did was jazz focused, mainly on saxophone, but then a little, little tiny bit of keyboards too. It's wild how jazz over the course of the last half of the 20th century moved to be this like super intellectual kind of college focused in many cases thing, right? Yeah. Its roots were so far from that. I mean, all these classic players, you know, who's more brilliant than Coltrane, right? Coltrane is like the ultimate intellectual jazz guy. And I I feel like through the influence of people like that kind of moved to be this sort of very brainy thing. Not that the early players weren't super smart. I'm sure uh, a lot of them were, but it became like distinctly an intellectual Thing and now, at least when I think of jazz players, I think of a bunch of weird music nerds who, you know, just can shred.
1: Man, I didn't get enough sleep, and this is this is a weird tangent, but um, (laughs) (laughs) I love comparing the music industry and music culture to the food industry. Yeah, do it. This is great. When you ask like an average Joe if they like jazz, most people are like. Oh well, it's 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 weird.
2: Like what? What? They're not even playing the right notes. You know, like it's like <laughs> every song is half an hour long. And what's happening? Yeah.
1: So normal music is like cheeseburgers and pizza, and like it's pretty easy to make that stuff yourself. You know what yep. I mean? Like pop songs, pretty easy to write. That's why most pop musicians are kids that are not very good at music. <laughs> Because right. it, it's it's like making a burger,
2: and there's some like innate sense there. Like you know, not anyone can make an awesome burger, yeah. but if you kind of have like let's say talent, which I think you know, even what you describe as sort of shitty pop music, yeah, like maybe aren't, they're not educated, but there's a sense of like what's good and what's not. Like Gordon
1: Ramsay has a burger joint. You yeah, know what right. I mean? <laughs> like Gordon Ramsay makes burgers. Everybody loves a good burger, but like if you want to impress. A chef, you got to make some chef shit. Yeah, that's right. If you're a professional chef and you're trying to prove to Gordon Ramsay that you should work at his restaurant, you're not going to make him a burger. Like, that's right. You're not going to make him, you know, barbecue or whatever. Like, you're going to make him some complicated crap that is like incredibly technical and difficult to produce and create. And That's
2: jazz. (laughs) 100%. There she is. Hey, it's me. Yo.
0: (laughs) No, keep going.
2: (laughs) I've never been so tardy. We'll we'll get back on jazz in a second. Is everything okay with your dog?
0: (laughs) Yeah, it's fine. Just fucking, I got home from getting coffee and was like, Oh, no, there are so many ants in my apartment, which is like you see the you know, one or two and then you refocus your eyes and you see the entire just fucking conga line of ants. Um, I was like, okay, I got my ant bait. I'm going to put some ant bait in a dish, put it down, went outside for a second, come back. And lo and behold, this fucker is just lapping it up.
2: This fucker. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Uh,
0: and then it was a lot of frantic vet calling. And then they're like, no, you got to call the poison control line. I was like,
2: oh, fuck. But everything's okay.
0: Yeah, everything's fine. It's it's more when they eat traps. It's like if they eat the plastic of the trap, that's when it's bad. But uh, she ate a tiny bit of, you know, syrup with Borax in it. And now she's sitting there staring at me like an idiot who doesn't understand why her mom is like verge of a panic attack for no reason. Yeah, that's so right. I'm talking to you.
2: Reminds me of a couple of years ago. You know, those uh, splat balls, you throw them against things and they splat. You know what I'm talking about? Yes, question mark? Jonathan, do you have any idea what I'm referring to? No. <laughs> so it's basically, it's, it's a little, a very uh, mushy sack of fluid. You can throw it against, you know, hard surfaces and it, like, completely flattens and then reforms into ball shape. Well, she punctured one and started drinking it. Oh. And, <laughs> and Rachel and I were like, ah! it, we just, like, freaked out, called poison control. And they were like, it happens all the time. Don't worry about it. <laughs> she was totally yeah. fine.
0: That seems to usually be the answer. But for anybody who has, like, you know, a small creature or child who are just drunk, drunk toddlers, just yeah. desperate to die, yeah. uh, it, it's 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 more of like, I think she's fine, but my anxiety is telling me she is going to suddenly drop dead.
2: Well, it doesn't hurt. I mean, if she ate something in you know, a fucking trap, got to call the vet and just check. I mean, that's not like anxiety out of control. That's like just being safe.
0: Yeah, totally. A few years ago, she ate like a very similar like roach tablet kind of thing, which yet again was like, oh yeah, it's Borax, uh, which is fine for dogs mostly.
2: You know what? Okay. This is a good time to introduce everybody. Great. (laughs) All right. So everybody, this is Layden. Hi. Just joining us now after dealing with the dog thing.
0: That's me. That's my name. Uh, The person who just spoke, that's Brian. That's Brian Wecht. What's up? Mystery guest, (laughs) whose name we've said. Would you care to introduce yourself?
1: Hello, everybody. <laughs> I'm Jonathan Young. I am a singer and music producer, best known for singing other people's songs, usually lower and louder.
2: <laughs> <laughs> On YouTube, usually. On YouTube, right? yes. Yeah, yeah. Awesome. Yeah, so we were just discussing chats. The point I was going to make, just like food... If you really get into it, there's a lot of education that needs to be there before you understand the context of what's happening. And this is very true, especially with classical music too, contemporary classical music, that if you're not aware of what happened in the past, you can't really appreciate what's happening in the present. I mean, this is true almost across any artistic discipline,
1: Yeah. uh, Yeah,
2: but some are more accessible, like Pop music, or certain types of food, or animation. Animation's a really good one, yeah. You know, just like everything is a basically subconscious stack of references to a zillion other things, and sometimes that's important to have, and sometimes it's not. And with jazz, I feel like it is generally pretty important to have. Otherwise, everything you're listening to sounds exactly the same. Yeah. A friend of mine from college had a running joke about our local Jersey jazz station, WBGO. And he's like, I can turn that station on any time of the day. And it always sounds exactly the same. Like, I can just turn it on. And it's always like, and it doesn't matter if it's not a commercial, if there's a song playing, if there's music, it always sounds exactly like that. And I can totally understand why to someone who doesn't know what's going on, it always sounds exactly the same.
0: What spurred on this jazz conversation? I'm sure everybody loves you guys having
1: this conversation Then you have to give me the play-by-play.
2: I was talking about how I first... Wait, wait, wait. Hold on. Excuse me. You joined us late. It's not my job to fill you in on the details of what you missed. I just want to be very clear about this. Um, it's none of your business how we started
1: talking about jazz. <laughs>
0: You're right. You're right.
1: I think we were talking about NSP and Tupperware Remix Party and how great they are. Which everybody is talking about these days, by the way. It's true. Yeah. 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 And then we were talking about live performances. And then we were talking about how, like, my ideal live
2: performance would be
1: jazz. And I think that's how we landed here.
2: Performing or watching? Performing. I feel differently. For, we're, so we're talking about live performance uh, in, in general, which is what, yeah, what spurred this. For me, I am always more excited about a live performing comedy than I am performing music. And so, when we do an NSP show, like I intentionally structure my part on stage so that I can stop playing at any given time. Walk off stage, try to generally ruin the show, mess with the other players, <laughs> irritate Dan. You know, walk up, like get right and have Hogan's face and stare at him for a while. I always, I, I will often like basically rub up against Lord Phobos while he's shredding some solo and just kind of nice. try to bother him. We structure the NSP shows. There, there are certain things that I have to be playing: intro to Unicorn Wizard, there's a solo in Cool Patrol, whatever, but. Most of the instrumental heavy lifting is done by twerp. And we have backing tracks too because we just can't simply do everything that we want to do on stage with the number of musicians we have. And I will often put my parts in the backing track so that I can fuck around and do comedy stuff, you know, where necessary. And then we always make sure we take a break in the middle of the show where we do kind of an acoustic thing of a sense where I get a full-size keyboard and we play some stuff like that where I'm actually like, playing, playing. But generally speaking, I'm much more excited about NSP shows because of the comedic element than the musical element. Yeah. Mm
0: -hmm. What's your favorite way to bullshit and bother everybody?
2: Oh, my favorite thing to do during a show is if Dan makes any kind of dig about me on stage, I just leave. I walk off the stage and then I will wait a very, very long time for people to sometimes they'll start chanting Brian or, or whatever, just trying to get the audience to bring me back out. And then after a long time has gone by, I will walk back out on stage reluctantly and then just cross the stage and go out the other side and then make them do it again.
0: God, and you wonder where Audrey gets it from. Yeah. Jesus.
2: <laughs> With Danny, it's always a line. Cause if I bother him too much, he gets genuinely annoyed. Uh <laughs> Which is, you know, I look, we've discussed this recently on this podcast. My goal is to bother people, but not so much that they're actually mad. And, you know, that's a process. There's always finding that line. I think at least once per show, I do something that actually irritates him for real. And then I always apologize afterwards. But that's that's always my goal is to just kind of bother people in general. Yeah. People should stop
0: letting me be on panels. But anytime I'm on a panel, if anybody like gets up and leaves or is hanging out near the door, I am going to harass them. Mm-hmm. It's just really great. To like, oh hey, you walking past. Oh, where are you going? Maybe go to the bathroom. Where, what's your name? What's going on? Like <laughs> Yes. I basically like to do what's my own worst nightmare as an audience member.
2: Nice. <laughs> yeah. Single them out. <laughs> I would love to do more of that during NSP shows, but it, this is going to sound like a humble brag and I don't mean it that way. But the shows are so big now that like just getting out into the audience makes it like a whole thing. And right. it's like security has to follow you, and it, it's, it's very disruptive to the show. So, I would love to like wander out in the audience and start annoying people face to face, but it's just not practical to, to do it anymore.
0: Yeah. yeah. Have I ever told you about my batshit Dream Daddy panel fever dream uh, at MomoCon in Atlanta?
2: We were just talking about MomoCon. I was talking about my live
1: performance history, and MomoCon was the first time I did a, a big. YouTube show a couple
2: years ago.
0: Wow, that's wild. I would never hear anybody talk about MomoCon.
2: Well, okay, were you there the same year? That's the big question that I'm wondering. I was there uh,
1: last year and the year before, I believe.
0: Yeah, we would have been there at the same time. I was there two years ago.
1: Nice. Yeah, that would have. That was the show I was just talking to Brian about. Brad. My first big YouTube show was Caleb Miles. Shout out.
0: Wow, that's awesome. Yeah. If y'all will indulge me. I love this story. I wish there was video evidence of it. but um, So that year, the Dream Daddy team was invited by Momocon to come do a panel. Um, and so I think Vernon was in Europe or something like that. So it was me, our narrative designer, Jory, uh, and then the games director, Tyler Hutchison. We were all invited to go be on a panel. And so we they flew us out and it was very nice. And then we were looking at the schedule of like, okay, when's our panel? Wait, did they schedule us for one at 2 a.m.? Because there was a panel that was like, Dream Daddy Q&A. Turns out it was like a fan put together, you know, like in-character question and answer panel. And we're like, okay, we have to go crash this panel. (laughs) So we did our normal one. And then later that night, important context is going to MomoCon. At the time, I had really short, like blonde, pixie cut hair. And so I dressed up as Joseph from Dream Daddy, and I was carrying around a Bible. So we were wandering around trying to find this room that the panel was being held in. It you know, 2 a.m. And I was going down the escalator, and then I just hear a bunch of kids scream,
1: Joseph!
0: And then I turn around, and it's like five people dressed up as characters from Dream Daddy. And they're like, are you going to the panel? And I was like, yes, I am going to the panel. And they were like, we don't have a Joseph. Do you want to be our Joseph? And I was like, yes. (laughs) I would love to be the Joseph. That's awesome. Nobody knows who we are. We get into the panel sitting up there and the kids, they were so sweet and like really precious, but I think all of them were very shy and they were kind of afraid to like actually interact because there was like a pretty sizable audience there. Um, and so I just kind of like took the mic and I was like, all right, let's do this. Let's go. And then Tyler and Jory were coming up to the mic in the middle to ask like really stupid bullshit questions and, you know, more people keep trickling in. Oh, and then basically the reason I bring this up is because I was doing a lot of harassing people walking past the door. And anytime somebody walked past, I'd be like, hey, you, you like hot dads? Get your ass in here. Come on, let's go. Mm-hmm. And at one point, this extremely, extremely handsome man in like an open Hawaiian shirt walked past. And I was like, you there, sir, get up here. You like dads? And he was like, hell, he like gestures to his shirt and is like, hell fucking yeah, I like dads.
2: Are, are you talking about me?
0: <laughs> Brian... I, I feel like you would remember this if it was you. It's. Oh, it's
2: I don't know. I, I don't remember.
0: Well, the thing is, is that this man was very, very drunk. And he's up at the mic and we're talking to him and asking him about, you know, do you like dads? And everyone's very excited because he's
2: like, I can't emphasize how attractive this man is. Yeah, it really sounds like you're talking about me. I mean, to to, to, to be fully honest, my ears are burning.
0: <laughs> so we asked him what his name is. He's like, my name is Bruce. And I was like, Bruce do you want to be on this panel with us? And he's like, sure. And then he comes up, sits <laughs> next to me, and he turns to me while the others are talking, and he's like, hey, do you want some Coke? And I was like, okay. <laughs> oh, my- on mic, he said that? No, not, not on mic. It was like behind mic. I, I think probably my <laughs> response of <laughs> no was on the mic. And then I was like, are you staying hydrated, buddy? Are you drinking water? And he holds up this big, big bottle of water, and he's like, no, it's ever clear. You want some Everclear? Oh
1: Oh, yeah.
2: Bruce, no. So he's literally a hot mess. Hot mess. Yeah.
0: How did this get kicked off? Someone came up to the mic and was like, Can I kiss Bruce? And Bruce was like, Yeah,
2: fuck it. Of course. Of course.
0: Gets off stage makes out with this person. And then a bunch of other people get into the line and they're like, I would also like to kiss Bruce. Oh my
1: God. Oh my God.
0: And so we have a train going on this drunk man who just is very enthusiastic about kissing everyone. And then uh, two people were dressed as sexy Waluigi and sexy Wario, so fishnets and you know very high I, heels
2: and stuff. I think of those as, as normal Waluigi and, and Mario.
0: Yeah, normal, normal Waluigi. And so normal Waluigi made out with Bruce. And at a certain point, like, you know, we're still sort of like answering questions about the game, which by this point, no one has caught on to who we are. (laughs) And then Bruce turns to me and he's like, where is Brittany? I was like, who's Brittany? And he's like, I know you're Brittany's friends. Like Brittany, you can drop it. Like this is all a prank. And I was like, who's Brittany? And he was like, my girlfriend. And we were all like, oh no, this dude just made out with a bunch of people in front of a room. (laughs) And he thinks, he doesn't know where his girlfriend is. So, Jory and Tyler helped Bruce uh, go find his his lady, I guess, because he left and it was very wild. But people were trickling in and they were like, is this the panel where the guy's making out with people? (laughs) (laughs) And then it got to a certain point, I'm not sure when the jig was up, but at a certain point, we were like, yeah, so uh, we made Dream Daddy, and then all the kids on the panel started crying.
2: <laughs> oh. <laughs> it, was,
0: it was so precious, and then afterwards everyone was like, that panel had multiple plot twists. That's incredible. And eventually we ran into Bruce again, and he still thought the entire thing was a prank, and I have a picture with Bruce.
2: Was he drunk the second time you saw him?
0: Oh, more so.
2: Did he offer you Coke the second
1: time? Oh, you that's saw a him. better question, yes.
0: No, which is disappointing. I would have done some lines off a of Bible
1: <laughs> with Bruce. Lines off a of Bible or lines off of Bruce? Yeah.
0: Both. So, Bruce, wherever you are, I hope you're well. Sexy Waluigi, I also hope you're well.
2: So, the, the reason, actually, that this podcast exists, I don't think we've ever quite talked about this, Layton. The reason we're here now is because of another Dream Daddy panel slash event, which was the one you guys did at Dynasty Typewriter probably about two years ago now. Oh, fuck. Which I walked away from and thinking, wow, Leighton's really great on stage.
0: Wow. Thank you.
2: So I, I wanted to do a talk show. And when I was talking over with Brent, we were talking about, oh, you know, I, I wanted to have someone else involved. And he was like, what about Leighton? And I was like, yeah, she was amazing on stage at that Dream Daddy panel. And that is why we're here now, because of a different Dream Daddy event.
0: Nice. Wow, thank you. I was very drunk at that show.
2: <laughs> but very funny.
0: Thank you. I really like doing live stuff. I'm so sad we had to cancel our show and then all the shit happened.
2: Oh, okay. That is an amazing callback or completing the circle because that's how we got into this anyway. Which, with our discussion of live performance. I want to ask you, actually ask you both, let's talk about cons in general. So, are you pro-con or con-con? Like, In the sense of, do you like doing them? Wow. Did you like think of that beforehand? How long have you had that one like ready? The thing is, I'm a genius and (laughs) I just thought of it right now. Wow. Yeah. That's the kind of A plus material that I I bring to this podcast.
0: I'm like pro con con. (laughs) My perspective is I like to go when the con invites me and I get the, They're basically like, here's a room you can go to if you want free coffee. And I'm like, yes, I will do it. But they're very overwhelming for me. I think if I wasn't like invited or had like career reasons to go, I wouldn't really do it. Like I like seeing cool stuff. I like people. I get sick every fucking time. So it's just like now I have to factor additional days into this because no matter how careful I am with it, I'm going to be hungover and sick. So yeah, they're they're not really my jam. It's just like, too many people, but I've had great times at conventions.
1: Cool. Jonathan? Kind of similarly, and like echoing what I said before, like I've had kind of a, a struggle of like wrestling with my own instinct to flip on my performer alter ego personality. And I am like consciously making an effort to not do that anymore. Mm-hmm. And kind of like latency. If I didn't get invited, if it wasn't like plane ticket paid for and I get to make money, then. I don't think I would go mainly because it's like, if I'm being honest, I'd rather just be sitting at home unless it's a career thing.
0: To be packed like sardines and everyone's screaming and sweaty. Like I've been to San Diego comic-con a couple of times now for, you know, business. And I remember being a kid and being like, yay, I want to go to San Diego comic-con before I die. And now when I go, it's just like, I am going to get, find like my five friends and get as drunk as possible.
2: At San Diego (laughs) comic-con. I want to die.
1: Yeah, I live here in San Diego and most of the locals that I know kind of like roll their eyes whenever anybody brings up Comic-Con. Oh, yeah.
0: Good luck getting food anywhere. Like, have fun with that.
1: With anything. When Comic-Con is on, like, like you can't drive downtown at all. You can't park anywhere. Like, Comic-Con is kind of like the the final boss of like everything that <laughs> irritates people with cons, I guess. But yeah, I don't know. There's also a certain level of like, especially over the past like three years, I could, man. Some of these topics like jazz and the the corporatization of nerd culture are two things that <laughs> I could absolutely hijack your podcast talking Do about it. for 2 hours. No, let's go. That's what yeah. it's for. Without going on too much of a tangent, I think there's definitely like something happening that no one wants to admit is happening very recently where big corporations have realized how profitable nerds are. 100%. Mm-hmm. It is completely changing everything and cons are like the front line of that yep. in, in a sense. Like now the highest paid actors in the world are all announcing their next big franchise movie at a con. Mm-hmm. Every single con, the highest billing is always an A-list Hollywood actor. Usually. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the big cons at least. The smaller cons, the highest billing is always the actor or developer that worked on the biggest AAA game or TV show. And it's just becoming who can show off that they like this corporate franchise more than anybody else while also waiting in line for six hours to meet a single actor that is in that show so that you can shake their hand and have them sign your sticker And then go home. And it's just like, it's weird to me because like, originally, without sounding like a fucking boomer, like, (laughs) that is like the exact opposite of what the whole like, big air quotes for the third time nerd culture was all about, was like, hey, like, I'm passionate about this, even though nobody else likes it. Even though this isn't conventionally popular, I'm really passionate about this thing. And now it's the exact opposite without, you know, going off on the whole like anti-capitalism thing. Like
2: corporations are literally just turning it into pop songs. Yeah. Yeah. I believe has happened concurrently with the rise of toxic fandoms. There are many wonderful fandoms out there. Late night listeners in particular are the ones I'm thinking about. Nice. (laughs) Yeah. No, that's what we do. But in general, right, it feels like fan culture is generally pretty toxic for most relatively high-profile things. And I wonder if there is a correlation between the corporatization of everything, hey, we're kind of in charge now, now that there's like real money and stuff on the line. Is that at all part of the reason why you see these very demanding and toxic fan cultures? I I don't know about that.
1: Can I interject with a perfect quote from Roger Ebert? Of course. (laughs) Holy fuck. This quote perfectly summarizes my frustrations with like nerd culture right now. This is kind of a long quote. I'll try to read it quickly here. So this is from Roger Ebert. Those of you that don't know who he is, he's like one of the most famous film critics ever. A lot of fans are basically fans of fandom itself. It's all about them. They have mastered the Star Wars or Star Trek universes or whatever, but their objects of veneration are useful mainly as a backdrop to their own devotion. Anyone who would camp out in a tent on a sidewalk for weeks in order to be the first in line for a movie is more into camping on the sidewalk than movies. Extreme fandom may serve as a security blanket for the socially inept, Who use its extreme structure as a substitute for social skills if you are luke skywalker and she is princess leia you already know what to say to each other which is so much safer than having to ad lib it your fanish obsession is your beard if you know absolutely all the trivia about your cubbyhole of pop culture it saves you from having to know anything about anything else That's why it's excruciatingly boring to talk to such people. They're always asking you questions they already know the answers to.
2: Wow. I mean, taking no prisoners on that.
0: That's such a like Roger Ebert take. It's so unsurprising that that comes from him.
2: The thing I disagree with the most is when he says it's not interesting to talk to such people. I assume he means as the creator they're a fan of, maybe but maybe he just means in general. If he means, I think actually either way, I I disagree. Uh, I'm a part of some fan cultures for sure. Yeah, I mean, so am I. We all are. And also, we all owe our careers to fan culture. Right. I mean, that's what YouTube uh, really is, right? Is a bunch of niche fan cultures. Yeah. And I never, ever, 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 ever want to come across like I don't understand that or that I don't appreciate the people who are fans of what I'm doing because it's, it's specifically because of the hardcore fans, he's kind of shitting on here that I can eat food and, you know, have a house that my family lives in. And without these hardcore fans, what I do for a living would not exist. And I appreciate every time they show up for an NSP thing, a Starbomb thing, whether it's touring or albums or whatever. They're they're the reason we can keep doing it. And I never, ever want people in that boat to think I don't appreciate them. So I, I don't like the shitting on fan cultures in general because it is those fan cultures that keep creators alive and active, especially now. I mean, think of how many people we know who are live performers who are fucked because of COVID yeah. and they have no backup. They can't do anything because we have, and specifically I'm talking about NSP here right now, because we have a fan base that shows up for what we do. We were able to put out an album. It hasn't come out yet, but it's coming out pretty soon. But we put out sales last week and they sold out in like a day. And that is, I'm not, I'm not trying to, to brag about that in any sense. Yeah, I am yeah. just saying that if I were a live performer right now without that fan base, I would not like be able to make ends meet this year. And because we have that fan base, you know, largely thanks to to Game Grumps and other stuff, but because we have that fan base, that is how I can survive this year and not go insolvent. So, I never ever want to shit on on hardcore fans cuz they're why why I'm here.
0: That said, there is like an interesting point in Ebert's thing that I've been thinking about a lot and this is sort of like maybe a wild thing to say. I don't know. But there's sort of like this in millennials and Zoomers, there's been a huge dip in terms of like people going to church or having like a strong religious belief system. And I feel like there is this growing like sense of community on the internet that has sort of like taken the baton over in terms of just like, here's a thing that we all know a lot about. This is like the quote unquote sacred text. And like, this is our community where we all bond and we make stuff about this thing that I think makes it really easy to get super invested in. Not that that's a bad thing or that it's like a religion per se, but it, it's just, I don't know. Does that make any sense?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I want to like kind of backtrack and make sure everybody knows that I'm not like trying to be that guy. Oh, no, no, no. I do think that it's important food for thought because like I've been that guy like i've been that guy who like rather than having a meaningful conversation with somebody i would just make it about you know star wars or whatever i was most like devoted to yeah. kind of like you were saying like religion replacement like my whole mental space was all devoted to just dedicating all of my passion to liking this creative work but i think that more importantly to kind of pivot this idea of like people that like these things with this like sort of religious dedication that makes it easier for these things that we love to get twisted by whatever corporation owns the IP. Mm
2: -hmm.
0: Right. And take advantage of that devotion and milk it.
1: But then we have this clash that's happening right now between Corporations owning these intellectual properties that people are very passionate about. And because they're corporations and because this is how capitalism works, they're going to put in the minimal effort possible to still cash in on these intellectual properties because that's mm-hmm. what has happened since the beginning of time and that's never going to change. So then these intellectual properties that people first became invested in because of a work of creative genius, you know, I don't want to poop on Disney too much here, but like with Star Wars being an example, everybody loves the original Star Wars movie. It completely changed cinema forever. And ever since then, we've seen this like decline of corporations kind of baiting people with their love and religious fervor for Star Wars and making it more about cashing in while kind of making you feel like we're still carrying the torch when really... It's not really the same thing anymore because it has been hijacked by the motivation to just make money off of it. Tale as old as time, starving artist making something amazing and then... Getting
2: bought out. Selling out, whatever. I think that's a big part of it too. As a general rule, a thing made by one person is going to be probably better than a thing made by a committee right? Yeah. And I, I feel like with a lot of these, you know, big franchises now, everything is like focus grouped and yeah. commodified to death to maximize profit, to play off the sense of nostalgia that you're talking about. I think that's also a big problem. And I see this in my own career where it's just a couple people, you know, NSP, just me and Dan to start out, literally no one else. And then we add a few valued members to the team, twerp, our producer, Jim Roach. And it's like, okay, now, like that's the sweet spot. Okay, we have just enough people to make this great. And if you go much beyond that kind of core, very small group, and especially if there's some kind of corporation involved, it starts to be too many cooks. And then it really, really gets dire. Every once in a while, you get something that's pretty great. I think a lot of the Marvel movies are pretty great. There's a lot to love in them, the... Thor Ragnarok, I thought was fucking awesome because I love Taika Waititi.
1: I'd make the argument that that was kind of made by one guy. Yeah, yeah. Taika Waititi was kind of the main. That to me is, is like very set apart from the
2: rest of the Marvel movies in terms of like artistic direction and integrity. For sure. I don't know the production process behind that one, but it was definitely not just like, hey, I'm just doing my own thing. I'm sure there was a lot of corporate involvement in that. The extent to which I don't really know. So maybe I'm completely wrong.
1: I read that that movie completely changed the way that Disney was typecasting Thor in the plot of the following movie. I believe it. I read that like that movie was what changed Thor's character from being this like stoic serious unfunny guy to being like a Guardians of the Galaxy type person. Yeah. I'm definitely like kind of jaded about the whole like marvel movie machine as well you should be but like straight up concede the point like ragnarok is a fucking good movie i agree he focused on making a good movie and the corporate execs did not like the fact that he was taking those steps and i think taika has gone on record like in several different interviews he said like
2: i thought that this movie was going to be the end of my career and instead it's the best the other thing is that it's genuinely funny. It's basically a buddy comedy, but it's not like wall-to-wall laughs start to finish. But because of his voice, it's it's actually funny. I Actually, I felt the same thing about The Mandalorian. I think The Mandalorian is actually the first good Star Wars thing I've seen since Empire Strikes Back. Oh, and yeah. I am willing to throw everything else under the bus. And not say it's terrible, but I have not watched a Star Wars thing since Empire. And I'm including Return of the Jedi in this. Uh, that I was like, yes, that, and then the Mandalorian shows up. It has actual comedy people who are allowed to be funny, has great effects, you know, fun plot, like Nolte as a weird desert fucking thing. I don't even know what that guy's deal was. Uh, (laughs) but watching the Mandalorian, I was like, this is how I want to feel when watching a thing. Like, I feel like they let them go and do a weird idiosyncratic little thing that, ended up being great and legitimately funny at points. Not all the time, because it's not supposed to be. But I, I will throw all of the prequels and indeed the uh, sequels, uh, Force Awakens. And I'm going to have to
1: watch that now. Those are strong words for you to say <laughs> that you would throw everything after Empire except for Mandalorian. Because I walked out of the theater after The Last Jedi and I haven't touched anything Star Wars ever since.
2: Dude, I get it.
1: Don't even... Get me started. Okay, well, how old are you? How old are you? This is important. I'm Twenty-six, but my dad like raised me on Star Wars. I have a box with ten plastic lightsabers in the room directly above me. <laughs> I have a box with like every Darth and a Stormtrooper helmet. Nice. I have read all of the novels about <laughs> post-Return of the Jedi that are now no longer canon about an alien race called the Yuzin Vong from a different galaxy invading the Star Wars galaxy. Han Solo and Leia have twin children, and one of them becomes like a Sith, but he's a good guy, and one of them is just a good guy. Like, man, this is another topic I could hijack your podcast about, man. And The Last Jedi, like, I walked out of that theater, and I was like, I can't do it anymore. Like, I will not tell people that I'm a Star Wars fan anymore because I feel big corporate has just taken a big butcher knife and stabbed my childhood. Yeah.
0: Well, I feel like that sort of touches some of the, like, toxic fandom stuff, too, because there's this huge conflation of identity with it of, like, you can say, I enjoy this thing or I am an ex-fan fan. And like once things start going downhill or people talk shit about something or it changes in a fundamental way, it's not only what they perceive as attack on the media, it's attack on the self and of the identity. So like that's why you see gamers getting mad like people who play girl games can't be gamers or whatever because it's like, oh, this threatens what you see as a fundamental part of your identity.
1: Yeah, the point that you made about like people conflating like a franchise with their identity and sense of self is like really important though. Because of that, People are so like personally attached to them feeling like this movie fits their identity that when it doesn't, Mm -hmm. there's a lot of misplaced anger and blame.
0: Yeah, it gets projected so outwards. And so like constantly when I see people mad about stuff, there is like an insane level of projection that says so much more about that person than it does about the piece of media like... Completely. It's just a complete like shifting of blame and like misunderstanding of what it takes to make something. And just sort of the, this has to be exactly for me. There's a um, Sam Sykes tweet that I think about all the time. Stages of a toxic fandom. One, I love this. Two, I own this. Three, I control this. Four, I can't control this. Five, I hate this. Six, I must destroy this. It's like one of my favorite tweets.
2: Wow. I haven't seen that one. That's a good one.
0: Yeah. But you just see it go through that of like, I love this. This thing isn't what I want. I hate the people that make this. I hate that they didn't do this exactly how I wanted. Maybe please be calm. You just had a brush with death in my mind. Please chill (laughs) out. It's really, really frustrating to watch happen. And I've also noticed like people have been doing this thing where they want to cancel stuff because a character in the thing does a bad thing like you're not allowed to have villains who do bad things because that means that you know depiction equals endorsement and you shouldn't support a fictional character who does a bad thing it's like you just want stories to not have conflict but i think that pulls into like the identity part of it of if you watch something or like something you being into a character must mean that you are like morally aligned with it which i think is truly like the death of media literacy.
1: I saw a post somebody was saying, we're seriously going to need to stop having morally ambiguous characters in (laughs) media because these kids don't know when to not idolize someone. These kids don't know that like Rick Sanchez in Rick and Morty is not supposed to be a role model. He's supposed to represent a toxic and broken person and you should not aspire to be like him because he's the main character in your wacky show. Tons of other examples like Walter White, the Joker, Don Draper, John Fight Club, I think was the guy's name. <laughs> John J. Fight
0: Club of the Fight Club Fight Clubs.
2: I think there has always been, there's always a bit of a recency bias with this stuff where mm-hmm. I'm sure there were always a bunch of people who were like, yeah, fuck them up, Gatsby, you know, or whatever. Like <laughs> there, there's going to be people who are always rooting for assholes, because they see something that they like in that. They see confidence. They see action. They see, you know, people doing stuff.
0: Yeah. With the Don Draper, Walter White's Rick Sanchez, it's like, this guy tells it like it is. This is a representation of a projection of how I wish I could be. And it's completely misplaced. But there is like a strong visceral reaction if you feel that strongly of seeing this asshole and being like, I relate with that.
2: Which is why we have a president that we currently have, because people see brash assholery as speaking truth to power yeah people say wow this guy's jaded this guy
1: got screwed over by the system and so did i that means that i should look up to walter white i should look up to rick sanchez
2: yeah i've mentioned it before on the podcast but uh there's a good piece by emily nussbaum who uh was a tv critic for the new yorker about bad fans that you should Absolutely. I mean, she's talked about this on more than one occasion, but she is a superb uh, writer and TV writer. So read her writings on bad fans and specifically in the context of Breaking Bad. You know, as we've talked about, like Vince Gilligan's whole idea was how far can we push Walter White and basically drag people along for the ride so that they're still rooting for him when he becomes just an abject monster. And there's a significant portion. I don't know percentages, I don't think it's anywhere close to most, but a significant portion of the Breaking Bad fan base who is just pro-Walt no matter what and sees him as the hero. And this is what you're talking about, Leighton, is is, it's lacking uh, media literacy to see that. But I I think those people have always been there. I have no evidence to support this. But I don't think that's a new thing. I don't think it's a new toxic fandom thing. I don't think it's because of corporations or whatever. I think there are some people who just will always love assholes. And, you know, they're more vocal now because it's easy to be vocal on the internet. But you'd have to really convince me that uh, those people haven't always been around.
0: Well, like, I love asshole characters. They're my favorite kind of characters because we've reached a point where, like, there is this refusal to put complexity or nuance into a character the character doesn't have to be morally good for you to like them. And I actually think there's also this huge thing where people expect media to teach them moral values as if it's like an Aesop's fable or whatever. Like, you should not be explicitly picking up your morals from pieces of media because you're just going to fuck yourself on that. Like, it's not going to work out for you. And it's part of what frustrates me about people being like, this thing has a problematic element, so don't engage with it or watch it at all because if you do, you are bad. And it's like, you are shutting yourself off from like a critical view of this thing because like you get the most out of something when you can acknowledge like, okay, this is problematic. This doesn't work. This perpetuates X, Y, Z. But also this is where it exists within this piece of work this has a history behind it and if you just like don't engage with it at all you're not actually developing that critical thinking skill to be able to differentiate that shit on your own rather than just believing what a random person on the internet says
1: if you're going to send a message to the corporations that are making this content saying that you don't want any of these sensitive topics to appear at all in the show otherwise it'll get canceled by the fan base then how do we raise awareness about it or how do we have any commentary about it to me that's like the next step is like, how do we move forward from this mm-hmm. polarization of fans versus art or fans versus corporation? Like, because mm-hmm. right now, like, if we go back to the example of Star Wars, we have two camps that are being lumped in together. We have people that either like the new movies or support the new movies, whether it be like the tokenism that the actor who played Finn, John Boyega, yeah, John Boyega. Awesome, awesome interview that he did where he pops off about how he feels like Disney used his race as a a way to like manipulate people into wanting to watch the movie, which is really interesting because we have all these people that are supporting these movies for reasons like that. And they will attack the camp that doesn't like it and write all of them off and lump all of them in together and put genuine critics of the movie who didn't like it for storytelling flaws or plot flaws. And they'll lump those people together with the the, the insoles who are sending Rose death threats on Instagram and act like they're in the same camp. How do we move forward? And instead of just dichotomizing everything, because that's the other reason why we have the current president is because everything is my team versus your team. Yes, mm-hmm. absolutely.
0: Yeah. The thing about, I really appreciate and respect John Boyega for just like going full on call out on all of this, because it's one thing to like put him in and be like, yay, we did a diversity, but he gets so sidelined. And like for the actor himself to be like, yeah, I got kind of pushed to the side, like Kelly Marie Tran got pushed to the side. It's like one of the things that frustrates me about the like, I'm mostly talking about Disney, but tons of things where they're like we did the bare minimum, be happy about it. And if you're mad about it, you're, I mean, it's what you're saying, Jonathan, like there's so much more complexity to that. And you can't just be like, we're Disney. We put in a gay character that you see for two seconds. Give us cookies, please.
2: Well, and also without any queer people in the writer's room or whatever, like that, 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 that's why you have to make sure that you're prioritizing diversity behind the scenes first. Yeah. And that will lead to a better outcome, a more diverse outcome in, with the final product. In the end. Yeah. Ugh. Anyway, uh, I think we can all agree assholes are bad. Indeed.
0: <laughs> a, a, a Controversial take from the late night podcast. Assholes yeah. are bad.
2: This is looping way back now, but I did not give my opinion on cons. Oh, <laughs> uh,
1: that might be a good <laughs> time for us to pivot. <laughs> yeah.
2: All right. I'll go back, whatever, half an hour, 40 minutes ago and talk about how I feel about cons. I really like them. Like I, I don't get to do many just by myself. I don't think I've ever been invited to a con, just me. Obviously, I'm not going to do anything now. But I love meeting fans. I love talking to people, shaking hands, hugs. You know, if it didn't get me sick, I would be all for it. But because that can get you very sick, I don't want to do that. But I love talking with. With fans and people at cons, I think it's great. After every NSP show, I do try to go out once the crowd has died down a bit and it doesn't cause a problem to go out and talk to people waiting by the bus or whatever. It's it's one of my favorite things about what we do is that we have people that are hanging around and they're from all over and, and want to talk to us. I, I I love that. I will say the negative parts about cons are that you kind of never know what you're getting into in terms of how it's going to be run what the security is going to be like, that sort of thing. I mean, everyone has great intentions. We've been to a number of things where it's been bad security and like completely disorganized. And that's the hard part to me about cons. Even the same con year after year, we'll have a turnover in leadership, and then you might have a great experience one year and a terrible one the next. Yeah. That to me is the hardest part. We went to one con in particular where the security was a total disaster and there were people following us to our rooms and that sort of stuff. That wasn't cool. Overall, though, most people are awesome and I genuinely love it.
1: The other thing for me is I think I'm in a position of bias being a cover artist. Mm-hmm. I would be a lot less cynical if I was like able to really flex my creative muscles. The whole cover thing... I feel like most of my music career has been, like, a painter tracing other people's drawings. Oh, yeah. I get it. And getting praised for it, which brings
2: up a whole other level of, like, imposter syndrome. Tell me about it. As you know, with NSP, like, we alternate kind of original and cover albums. We've made it a point. We will never have more cover albums than we do original albums, precisely because of that.
1: I'm kind of jealous, man. <laughs> like i've told you about like the original project that i'm working on yeah this is kind of a deep dive kind of a story not necessarily in length but like emotionally i guess the whole reason that i started my youtube channel was for me mentally the first step of selling out what do you mean i was studying lyric writing and composition at a music school You want to say which one? Sure. Actually, I'll shit on it because it was a a horrible (laughs) predatory school and they went out of business. They closed abruptly and didn't pay the salaries of their teachers. What? The exchange students that had come from other countries got their visas revoked out of nowhere. Oh, fuck that. Yeah, the school was uh, McNally Smith College of Music in St. Paul, Minnesota, and fuck that school. 40 grand a year to bait kids into saying, we'll teach you how to be a rock star, which is why I dropped out. Thank all of the music gods for my lyric writing teacher, Gary Rue. Great, great guy. He pulled me aside after my first week of songwriting class, and he was like, man, you shouldn't be here. You got to just go do it. You have to just move to L.A. or Tennessee. Yep. Just do it.
2: What great advice. Yeah. Real quick, are you a Minnesotan?
1: Yes. I grew up in Minnesota, but I would love to circle back to that later because, man. Okay, yes. There are so many reasons that I'm very happy that I live in San Diego now. But (laughs) I
2: am married to a Minnesotan, so I'm always curious about Minnesotans, but continue. (laughs) Maybe I'll retract what I just said. No, 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 no. Don't. Anyway, my goal
1: dropping out of this music school was to be the next... Billy Joel or Ed Sheeran. Like I wanted to be the kind of bluesy singer songwritery piano and acoustic guitar guy playing like soft rock or whatever. That was the plan. And I spent two years playing every show that I could, writing the best songs that I could singing in bars, paying my dues in Minnesota, which is a state that loves to brag about how great its local music scene is. And I was doing everything that I could to try and take advantage of that. And at the end of the day, I got literally nothing out of it. And finally, I caved. And I looked at some people doing YouTube covers at the time, this would have been like 2013. I looked at some of these other people playing acoustic guitar or rock versions of Taylor Swift songs. And I said, yeah, I could probably do that. I'm going to go to Best Buy and I'm going to grab a camera and I'm going to sell out because I'm selling out. I'm finally going to make enough money to move out of my parents' basement at age 22. Mm -hmm. So many other YouTubers and like content creators and artists that I talk to are like, always like kind of taken aback when I tell this story because many of them come from a place where they genuinely were like expressing their passion on the internet and it worked out for them Mm -hmm. and I'm I'm very happy for them and that's great but like my whole career started with me saying fuck it I'll compromise my integrity to make some money and it worked and I kind of like lost myself a little bit along the way in terms of like I kind of got lost in my own ego for a little bit shortly after my career kicked off. But then everything other than that has literally just been a series of steps of me saying, what's the most financially profitable thing that I can sing on my YouTube channel?
2: Selling out, I think is a it's a loaded term. Yeah. yeah I don't yeah. think there's anything wrong with what you're describing. You got to make a living You are not the first musician to be like, hey, how can I actually make money off this? All right, I'm going to do this thing that maybe is not my preferred angle, but it seems like I have a chance at it. And then that allows you to do, hopefully, the other stuff that you want to do eventually once you kind of build up that fan base and make some money and blah, blah, blah. So I I don't think there's anything wrong with what you're describing from, I don't know, like a moral point of view. You know what I mean? Really what it is for me is like
1: guilt. Mm -hmm. I guess in two parts, I threw together a cover of the opening from Tokyo Ghoul, which is like one of the most popular anime songs of all time. I've never seen a single episode of Tokyo Ghoul.
2: Clayton, do you know what he's talking about? Nope.
1: Yeah, neither do I. And this is all like super niche stuff. Like you guys were talking about Nightcore in your last episode. Uh, (laughs) Which is funny. because That's like my fan base is the type of people that watch amv videos from early 2005 youtube or whatever that's awesome
2: real quick just to make make sure i don't know what he's talking about either just in case anyone out there assumed tokyo ghoul basically tokyo ghoul is a a a cult popular
1: anime show but more (laughs) importantly the theme song or the opening to that tv show is called unravel and it is probably the most popular anime theme song of all time. And when I say that, you have to understand that people who watch anime don't listen to music. They listen to anime theme songs.
2: Oh, that's interesting.
1: If you watch the Spotify playlist of somebody that is a huge anime fan, all they listen to is the theme songs to all their favorite shows.
2: That's a, That strikes me as weird because I know... Maybe you're talking about super hardcore people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Obviously, there's a big crossover, I'm sure, between people who are listening to this right now and, you know, people who like anime. That's not been my experience, but I also don't know, like, the super hardcore segment.
1: I'm generally talking about, like, the super, super hardcore fan, and I I don't mean this as, like, a dissing anime fans or anything. Like, many, like, film people are the same way. Like, that, instead of listening to music, they'll listen to film scores. And that's totally cool. Mm -hmm. You do you. You know what I mean? But I... Learned about this song just by researching what anime songs were popular and by listening to the comment section and people were requesting this song. And I threw together a cover, which has been in millions of, of fan-made YouTube videos. Mm-hmm. Kind of like the shippy stuff that Layton was talking about on your last episode. Yeah. And I was sick at the time. So my voice was cracking. Mm-hmm. And that made it seem like I was like emotional when I was recording it. And it's like my, you know, it's got like 20 million views or something stupid. (laughs) That's awesome. 30 million views. Oops. When did that happen? Uh, Not to humble Brett, but like on the one hand, I'm very, very grateful that I was able to like pay several mortgage bills by throwing together a cover of this song. Like I'm very privileged to be able to do that. Of course. Yeah. But I also feel guilty because there are, Tokyo Ghoul fan accounts
2: that are posting edited photos of me in association with this show. You're saying that they're posting photos of you because they are saying, look at this ultimate Tokyo Ghoul fan, or they're posting because they're like, hey, look at this guy who recorded this thing we love.
1: The line is kind of blurred. They use social media to post about how much they love these anime shows. And there's people like designing these posters that have like characters from Tokyo Ghoul and then me. That sounds pretty awesome, actually. (laughs) It's like humbling, but it's like, I don't belong on that poster. There's a disconnect there where you don't Mm -hmm. know who I am, but you think that I do because of the assumptions that you're making based on the professional choices that I've made to sing these songs from these fandoms.
0: There's like the imposter syndrome of that, of like you feel complicit. I I don't want to speak for you, but like you feel complicit in kind of creating this image to yourself because like once you're out there, there's a level of performance to it where if you Mm -hmm. want to protect yourself and like vulnerability, you kind of play into it on purpose a little bit just because it's like that's safer. I will let people have these five things about me and they can go from there, but I being a genuinely vulnerable kind of like bites you in the ass, especially if you have like existing imposter syndrome or issues with identity. And I think especially like, you know, I'm 23, barely an adult and like just trying to to figure shit out. And so when you suddenly like don't have that solid identity and then people who don't know you at all are like, this is who you are. It creates like that crisis. And especially in the context of making art in that, like, It just kind of becomes a quagmire where you're like, I have somehow misrepresented myself or this isn't who I am, or is this really who I am? Like, there's so
2: much doubt in it. I couldn't have said it.
0: Like, assuming that people who have never interacted with you know you better than you you know you.
2: Yeah. I think about this all the time. So in the context of myself, not to turn everything into being about me, but... How dare you? Well, (laughs) my name's on the podcast. (laughs) we are t- talking about bad fans and characters, too. Like, my character is a psychopath who, like, you know, yes, plays music, but also murders people constantly, albeit in a comedy context. Yes, of course, I get that. But, like, I am known for playing an abject asshole, like, yeah. who's very proud of it. You know, Ninja Brian's whole deal is he's a dickbag and he knows it. Leighton, to your point of, like, there are the few things that people know about you. When I first started showing up on the Game Grumps channel, had I been calculated about it, I would have been like, oh, maybe people can see a a more tender side of me. Instead, the thing I chose to do because I thought it was funny was talk about my fucking doctorate in physics because I was like, no one would actually do this seriously. And then it became for people, oh, look, he plays an asshole and he is an asshole. (laughs) And which, I mean, some of my favorite comedy types are these like false bravado kind of thing, which is what I thought I was playing into, only not realizing that some people can't pick up on that. Just neurologically, they can't. And, you know, when everything you do is deadpan, which is everything I do is deadpan, in case people have not picked that up on this podcast yet, uh, and you never acknowledge your own bits even people who are savvy will start to be like, wait a minute. I I think he might be a jerk for real. And I think all the time about maybe I really shot myself in the foot by having a jerk character who wears a mask and then playing a jerk character who (laughs) doesn't wear a mask. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, And then those are the five things that people know about me, you know? Dick, 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 dick.
0: Yeah, and and there's layers to that too because totally when I first met you, I was like, is Brian going to be a dick? And like, you're (laughs) genuinely one of the nicest, like most generous people I've ever met. Oh, thank you, thank you. But it's funny, like as I told you the other day when you were doing your AMA, like I had a ton of questions that were like, is Brian
2: nice? (laughs) I totally get it. I mean, you look, when I meet fans in person, my goal is for them to walk away from that interaction feeling awesome and feeling like, you know, I, I am not a jerk. <laughs> Don't think that in a calculated way. When I meet someone as a fan, introduced myself or said hi to enough famous people, not that I'm calling myself a famous person, but like put yourself in that situation. The worst way you can feel is that that person is kind of a dick and you're bothering them. Yeah. And yeah. then you walk away from that and you're like, oh, I didn't like that. So if I have someone that comes up to me as a fan I never, ever, ever want that person to feel like that wasn't a great interaction for them because I am genuinely, genuinely appreciative and I like meeting people. So I do worry about, in my personal case, that people genuinely think I'm a <laughs> I'm an asshole. And anytime I have a chance to correct that in person, because I do think, you know, I try to be a nice guy. I don't know if I am, but I, I try to be. I want people to be aware that that is the dominant side of my personality. Uh, if you ever, you know, see me for real in person.
0: Yeah, I mean, and and there's that level of like, feels like an intense word word for it, but whether it's like the pedestaling or being like, I hate this person for X reason that I've never met, it's like dehumanizing, even yes. the stuff that's like super positive because it totally makes you feel like an object and not a person. And I, I guess using the word object, it's there's that additional element to it if you're like a woman online, where it's just like, oh, you just want to fuck me, I guess, all right cool, I've accepted this. This is just as gross and is dehumanizing if you were like openly an asshole to me. It's like, I don't want to be like just an image. Should we do segments?
2: Yes, we should.
0: (laughs) This has been a fucking awesome conversation and I could
2: continue it. Actually, speaking of music, it's interesting that you mentioned that because uh, we don't have that many other musicians on this. And the first of two segments that we have on this podcast. It's called What's Poppin'. And I I don't want to brag. It has a great theme song that I wrote. (laughs) And I'm very interested in in your opinion of this theme song. Like, I trust your ear. I trust your judgment. I'm going to play this for you. And I think you're going to be blown away. I think you're going to say, this is, and again, I'm hesitant to use this word often. I will use it now. Genius. And I think you're really going to, I don't want to oversell it. Love it is what I'm going to say. I think that's a conservative estimate. Hit me with it, man. Okay. Ready? Here it goes. What's popping? What's popping? All right. Fucking boom. So what did you think? Is the bit that I couldn't hear anything? (laughs) That is the bit.
0: Put a tally on the Layton side for this one, (laughs) motherfucker.
2: This bit never works. (laughs) Were you hoping that I'd be like, yeah, Brian, that was great. I'm never hoping for anything. Mainly I just do this because Layton doesn't like it when I do it. So any reaction you have is fine with me.
0: Now that we have the upgraded version of Zencaster, you have a soundboard.
2: Oh yeah, I could play it. You could.
0: And my suggestion of how to make this bit better is to intermittently sometimes actually play the theme song and sometimes not so that the audience doesn't actually know. But why would Brian listen to me?
2: <sighs> we have a soundboard. Not, yeah.
0: Let's do this goddamn segment. Layden, what's popping? What's popping for me is that just this week, I watched Borat for the first time. <laughs> I wow. somehow got this far without having seen Borat.
2: In anticipation of the sequel. Yes, of course.
0: Yeah, it was great. I loved it. Always very interesting to fill out like a cultural comedic gap that influenced an entire generation of comedy. And just like retroactively realizing all my weird friends in middle school were just constantly doing Borat. uh, I just had no idea.
1: (laughs) I realized that last week when I saw the trailer for Borat 2, that one of my friends that I used to play games with online he used to always do the Borat voice, and I thought it was hilarious, and I never knew that it was the Borat voice. So I would start to do it. <laughs> For years, I was doing the Borat voice because my friend did it, not realizing that it was Borat.
0: Yeah, I, I had a great time. I needed to watch a comedy thing, and I'm going to shove another What's Poppin' in here. I also watched a movie through totally legal means that I acquired legally.
2: Oh, that's good to say.
0: David Cronenberg's son, Brandon Cronenberg, uh, made a body horror movie. Oh, did you see it? Yeah, I saw Possessor. Oh my God, it was so fucking good. I was watching it with Vernon over Discord on Thursday night, and I happened to check my phone in the middle of the movie, which led to us fucking screaming regarding news that happened early morning of Thursday. Uh, it, It was just a great experience. I was just blown away by it. It's really great. Whenever it is also able to be acquired legally, everybody should check it out because it's super good. Jennifer Jason Lee, Andrea Riseborough, like love her. they knock it out of the park. I love that Jennifer Jason Lee has just gotten typecast as evil therapist. Yes. So those are my what's poppins. Also, going to add Sasha Baron Cohen, hot.
2: Yes, I agree with that. Definitely. I, I want to say my favorite Sasha Baron Cohen thing is the Tim Burton Sweeney Todd movie. He plays Pirelli, I think is the guy's name, basically a snake oil salesman who's one of the antagonists, and he crushes it. He's really great in that.
0: Yeah, his dramatic stuff is like great. I hated Lamez, but he was really delightful in it.
2: Well, oh, Miz, yeah, that movie. Did we talk about how they recorded that thing? And apparently, as a musical, like they didn't use a click track? <laughs> 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 yeah, so right. they recorded wow. this thing without a click track, apparently. Because it's, it's Tom Hooper. They recorded this whole thing. And apparently, well, during editing, the editors were like, you didn't use a fucking click track? like," And made it very, very difficult to edit. Anyway.
1: well, Because they didn't want to overdub it. They wanted to be able to flex about how it was all recorded live. And if they're going to flex about how it's recorded live, then it's a hassle to have to edit out the clicks.
2: Yeah.
0: Jesus. Jonathan,
2: let's pop it.
1: Yeah, so there's this game that just came out, which I I will warn you is not for the faint of heart. It's a hard game. It's called Crusader Kings 3. The reason I like it so much is I have learned more about medieval history from this game than I have learned in my whole life. And I don't know if you guys have, like, played any strategy games before, maybe some of the listeners. If you're a fan of classic games like Sid Meier's Civilization mm-hmm. uh, or other, like, empire-building economic strategy games, then you'll probably love this game because it's, like, the grown-up version of that kind of concept. Oh, cool. There's two time periods that you can start, and you can start in the year 865 AD or 1065, I think. AD, which are two very tumultuous points in history, which I did not know until I played the game. I mean,
2: 1065 is very close to 1066, which is the the Norman conquest of
1: England. I see you're a man of culture.
2: I I don't like to use the word genius more
1: than six times in a single podcast. I mean, let me run with that example. So the Norman conquest of England, you can play as the English king who is about to be invaded. You can hmm. play as the... Can you be William? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can play as him. You can play as the guy that he invaded. So you can play as those guys and you can play as the Norwegian king that also tried to conquer England at the same time and failed. And you can like alter history and, and like play out this invasion of England but make better decisions than the actual historical king did and possibly change the course of history. (laughs) Cool. Obviously, that's like, wow, I can do that. But like every single decision that this king would have had at his disposal is up to you. You can fracture the Catholic Church for personal gain. Dope. Yes, please. If the Pope doesn't like you, you can start your own offshoot of Christianity that will allow you to take advantage of your peasants better. Everything. So I'll close with this story of kind of like why I have been liking this game so much. You can play down to the level of a count, Hmm. which means that instead of playing as William the Conqueror, you could play as the Duke of Normandy underneath William the Conqueror and help William invade England. And then when the time is right, you could try to usurp William the Conqueror after he takes over England and manipulate and use your bishop to fabricate a claim on the throne of England so that you can rise from your station. Like it's crazy complex game. But anyway, first time that I played through this game with my buddy, we both wanted to pick like a low level tribal chieftain to start uh-huh. the game as. Part of the concept of the game is that once you get too old and die, for example, in Sid Meier Civilization, one of the greatest strategy games of all time, if you're playing as the nation of America, your character is George Washington in big air quotes Mm. (laughs) from 10,000 BC to the year 3,000 AD. But in Crusader Kings, if your character dies, you continue to play as your heir. And if the succession laws of the nation that you are leading will determine which of your children is the character that you play as. So if you have a child that is not your heir, but has better stats than your eldest son, you can manipulate the succession laws in your country so that you will continue playing the game as your child with the highest stats. I was looking around the map. I knew that once my guy died, I would have to play as my heir. So I thought I'd pick someone young. It'd be cool to be a Viking. You're a Minnesota guy. That's not surprising. Yeah, yeah. I'm from the great white north. <laughs> so, you know, I, I was looking around and there was this Viking chieftain who was only 17 years old by the name of Harold Fairhair. This guy has pretty good fucking stats. Uh, like, I'll I'll try playing as him. He's only got this tiny, tiny little speck of land and a couple troops that he can call on. And during this playthrough... I slowly amassed troops and pulled some strings and puppeteered some people and did some invasions until I conquered all of Norway. (laughs) And then I'm about to go to bed and I was like, you know what? I heard that they did a lot of research for this game and that a lot of this is like historical shit. I went and I Googled Harold Fairhair and he was the guy that became the
2: first king of Norway. Awesome. Got him. And it absolutely fucked me. (laughs) That's awesome. All right, so you have to ask me what's popping, because those are the rules.
1: Brian, what's popping?
2: Oh, well, thank you for asking me. What's popping for me, it used to be one of my favorite pieces of music, and I hadn't heard it in a while. Like, earlier this morning, a friend of mine on Facebook, he's a teacher, and he said, what piece of classical music, like rocks, like would really get people psyched to listen to it, like kids? And... I came up with a few examples, and the one that I was like, oh, fuck, right, that is the composer Bela Bartok, who's a Hungarian composer, one of my all-time favorites, wrote a series of six string quartets, and the fourth one has a fourth movement that is one of my favorite things in classical music. And it just starts out with, they're playing these super discordant chords and it just starts out with like, it's like, it's a crazy thing. And then it just goes on. It never lets up. I love it so much. I probably hadn't heard it in about five years. Bella Bartok, string quartet number four. Yep. Bella Bartok, string quartet number four, fourth movement specifically.
1: I have definitely heard this.
2: Yeah, it's so good. I mean, kind of Bartok, everything rules but the string quartets in particular are, are some of my favorite. So I, I love this Bella Bartok string quartet number four, specifically the fourth movement, uh, one of my favorite things of classical music that I had forgotten about. I'm sorry, it's the fifth movement I'm talking about. I got confused. The whole fourth quartet is great. The thing I'm talking about right now is the fifth movement. Beginning of the fourth one was giving me anxiety. That was some... Well, get ready for the fifth. I'm going to play it so listeners can hear it. That's what it sounds like. That's, that's dope. Yeah, hold on. I have to correct this Facebook thing that I posted just a second. The fifth movement of the Bartok fourth string quartet. Not the fourth movement. This is exciting. Exclamation point, proofread, post, done. Okay, great. Done. Thank you.
0: Unprofessional. All right. Are we ready for peaches?
2: Yes, we are ready for peaches and lemons.
0: Lemons. Peaches, and lemons. peaches and lemons is a gratitude exercise that we end every episode with. We haven't done lemons in months because there's just too many of them. So each of us will go around and share three peaches, which can be as petty or as like meaningful as you want, just things that you're happy about, excited for, a nice thing that happened, uh, etc. Who would like to go first?
2: I'm happy to go first. Do it. So uh, peach number one. We had some friends over for dinner a couple of days ago, socially distanced, outdoor, blah, 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 all the safe stuff. And it was a, a lady and a gentleman and the dude in the couple was talking to Audrey and he said, you know, Audrey, you have the second best mom in the world. And they says, but do you know who the first best mom in the world is? And he did the thing. See if you can picture this with me where he, you hold up your palm of let's say your left hand flat so that your hand is facing to the side like it's a wall and then you point at the other person like your hand is shielding them. Do you know what I'm talking about?
1: Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Can you yeah. picture
2: this? Where you're like pointing at them but like supposedly they can't see it yeah. because your your hand is shielding them from the point. Yeah. So he says, Audrey, do you know who the first best mom in the world is? And he does that and Audrey goes, your hand <laughs> <laughs> nice and it broke the room up it was one of the funniest things i've heard in months
0: oh, yeah. i'm sure she was very excited to get that response
2: well she didn't understand why it was funny <laughs> but she was very excited that people thought she was funny actually my my second peach is a minnesota thing so jonathan are you familiar with the radio station 93x Oh, yeah. 93X rocks. Dude, that's all I listen to. Okay. Are you familiar with the Half-Assed Morning Show
1: on 93X? I have never listened to it, but I've definitely heard them talk about it. Yeah.
2: Okay. Well, my brother-in-law, Josh, is one of the hosts of the Half-Assed Morning Show on 93X. And for their show, they do a segment called Dad Fights where they have Randy Shaver. I think he's a sports guy originally, or he's their sports guy. And they have this other guy, Brad, I can't remember his last name, who comes on and they, you know, argue about dad stuff. And so Josh wrote me a couple weeks ago and said, we do the segment called Dad Fights with Brad and Randy. And would you write a theme song for it? And so I am happy to oblige because Josh is great and uh, I love what he does, and he's he's my brother-in-law too. So I wrote a segment for the ninety-three X Half-Assed Morning Show called Dad Fights, which I think they are playing on Fridays now. And I also I sent them all the stems, so I think they're letting listeners like remix it or you know do their own versions of it or whatever. So yep, if you listen to the Half-Assed Morning Show uh, on Friday mornings, I believe is when they do this segment. You can hear my theme song for their bit dad fights and it's just cool like it's cool to have a brother who does a popular radio show and ask me to contribute to it so fuck you yeah. that's lovely the final peach my third peach is that we have a new ninja sex party album coming out and in, in a week it'll be out a week from the day this podcast airs and i'm really happy with it and i can't wait for people to hear it fuck yes love it yep we're doing two singles and then another video when the album comes out I guess the video that comes out the day people are hearing this is one of my favorite songs on the album. Uh, it's called Wondering Tonight. And the star of the video is a major pornographic actress <laughs> who uh, was very, very sweet and did a great job. So hopefully y'all can check out that video and, and hopefully you like it as much as I do. Awesome. Can you tell us who it was? I don't want to give anything away, but people will see the video by the time they hear this. Her name is Mia Malkova. Awesome. I think there are some memes about her floating around in the industry. I'm sure there are. She's hugely popular, and it was was great working with her. She was awesome. We've done a couple videos with porn stars now, and it is always fascinating conversations with people in an industry that I know next to nothing about, (laughs) but they're always very, very down-to-earth and very self-aware, as you might expect, and just super fun to talk to about what they do for a living. Fuck.
0: Hell yeah. Jonathan, would you like to share some succulent peaches?
1: (laughs) Yeah. Obligatory. Uh, My wife and my dogs, always the best. Cool. Uh, I've got two dogs and one wife. (laughs) They're great. Can
2: we have names of wife and dogs?
1: Yeah. My wife's name is uh, Alicia, and my dogs are Lily and Lolo. (laughs) Uh, Lily and Lolo? Lily and Lolo. And believe it or not, when we adopted Lolo... We already had Lily, and his name was already Lolo. So that was not planned. A match made in heaven. Yeah, so she is a Shizu-Yorkie mix. Mm -hmm. She is the sweetest, most calm, and attention-hungry dog ever. And (laughs) Lolo, I think he fell on his head when he was a puppy. (laughs) Oh, no. Bless his heart. He's just a fucking idiot. But, yeah. The other peach that I came up with is kind of tied to what you could call a lemon. That's fine. I am a huge, huge, huge Magic the Gathering player and collector, uh, which is something I don't talk about very often because (laughs) A, nobody cares, and B, um, (laughs) I, 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 I don't want another one of my passions to be drowned in the internet and in financial gain right but magic the gathering wizards of the coast and hasbro which are all the nested companies that own each other recently released a collaboration project where for those of you that don't know magic the gathering they have their own like world and story kind of like D or whatever or like the marvel multiverse mm-hmm. and they recently printed a collaboration with the walking dead which whatever it's like clickbait but they made the decision to make these cards that are absolutely have no place having anything to do with the the existing universe of magic the gathering they made these cards competitive legal with an exclusive print run of only a week which anyone who's ever played a competitive trading card game can tell you This basically means that if these cards end up being good enough to be played in tournaments, if you want to play in a tournament to get one of these limited print learn cards, you'll have to buy it from a price gouger on eBay for upwards of $1,000. Fuck.
0: Jesus.
1: So that's kind of a lemon, but something that has made me very happy and hopeful about the state of capitalism this week is that the entire Magic Gathering community overwhelmingly basically rose up and said fuck this. These (laughs) cards should be banned from tournaments. This is a price grab and you guys should be ashamed of yourselves for disrespecting us like this. So it was nice to see people not falling for the clickbait for once. Yeah. That's heartening. That's great. And my last peach, kind of going to do what Brian did here and shamelessly fucking plug. Do it. Do it. I have been working on an album for five years that I have not announced yet. I went into this with the idea of musicians, a lot of times, take themselves too fucking seriously, and everybody only ever writes songs with the same four chords, and every single song is just a contest of who can sing about being depressed the most, or who can sing about (laughs) their, you know, twerking or whatever the fuck. I don't, I don't care. So, To combat this, I'm gonna write an album about fucking just the most absurd shit, but it's gonna be so damn good that you can't be mad about the fact that I'm singing about absolute nonsense. I gotta prove a point about how writing a good song has nothing to do with pandering to people's romantic feelings or whatever. Perhaps more importantly, cliches rhyming tonight with it'll be all right." Fuck that. I'm gonna write something that's totally different. No one's ever done it before and it's gonna be the most ridiculous over-the-top thing that you've ever heard. As of right now, the fake band that I have started is going to be called (laughs) 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 I have every single song done but one. And there may or may not be a very special guest on it.
2: Oh, I wonder who that could be. Yeah. (laughs) But uh,
1: anyway, um, you know, I have a couple singles very much taking some pointers from all your favorite bands like Ninja Sex Party, Steel Panther, Tenacious D. And then also some more funky stuff like Dirty Loops, Snarky Puppy, and some classic like ridiculous metal stuff like Beast in Black and even like Pentakill. Mm. I have a song called uh, Army of Tigers, (laughs) which is about commanding an army of tigers to defeat the sun. Mm -hmm. Makes sense. And uh, (laughs) I've got another song on here called Settle It with a Sword Fight. Mm. I'm into that. The justice system for a bunch of galactic space pirates. (laughs) That's the kind
2: of album that you guys are getting from me after five years of barely releasing any original content. (laughs) Now, now, can can I just interject here and say that I have been lucky enough to hear some of these tracks. Yes, you have. From this album. And they are rad. I love them. Thank you. So when this comes out, I think everyone's going to be very, very excited and impressed. I'm going to make an announcement soon and basically try to tell
1: everybody, like, forget about anything that you've ever heard from me. In fact, throw it in the garbage. I would rather have you listen to this and then never listen to anything else that I ever do again because...
2: Dude, you could pull an Unus and delete all of your other videos.
1: <laughs> oh, man.
2: <laughs> I don't know if I can pay my
1: mortgage, though. <laughs>
2: well, I know.
0: <laughs> Legitimate.
2: Yeah. But
1: anyway, I'm paying a bunch of animators to do animated videos for... I think all the songs are going to have like the full-on treatment. Great. Basically, I don't want the focus to be on my face and like my performance, like I want it to be about this like mythos of this like ridiculous album, kind of like the gorillas or or or, or ninja sex party uh, or something like that. I want to be able to flex some creative muscles without risking falling into the cliches of being a YouTube cover artist that just pivots into being another generic radio rock guy. Yeah, I really want to show that this is not the path that I'm gonna take. Awesome. I love
2: it.
0: Yeah, I was gonna ask you earlier like where you saw yourself going if you're not completely satisfied with covers. So I'm, I'm I'm really happy to hear that, man. Congratulations.
2: I'm very stoked. I think it's gonna be a hit. I I mean from from what I heard, I don't see it going any other way. Layton, what are your peaches?
0: First peach, ate Taco Bell last night. Always exciting. Love it. Congratulations. What'd you have? Thank you. Usually when I get Taco Bell I get enough to kill a horse You know, got to get those Locos Tacos. I got just an abysmal, they have like a folded up quesadilla now. It's stupid. The level of quality you would expect from Taco Bell. So disgusting, but amazing. Long time Taco Bell stand on this podcast. None of this is surprising. Uh, My second peach (coughs) is...
2: (laughs) Someone suggested that I add a maybe bark to the soundboard. I heard,
0: yeah, I think you don't need it because she's... I don't think I need it. Fucking going. Um, my second peach is <laughs> it- <laughs> my second peach is uh I'm working on a really cool thing with real good touring that I'm excited about and I can't say anything about, but it's really fucking cool. And people will hear about it mid-October. I've just been super jazzed on it. Can't say anything else, but it's neat. My third peach is um, I had some friends that moved away recently and they finally gotten settled in their new places and we were able to uh, get a little bit of gaming in. It's been a while since they moved.
2: Oh, nice.
0: Yeah, yeah. It was really lovely and it put me in some good spirits after a very, very anxious weekend. So that was my third one and I had a great time. Fuck yeah. Um, That's great. So that that ra- that just about wraps up this long episode, but long, but very good. IMO. Thank you so much for being here, Jonathan. Um, Where can people find you on social media?
1: Thank you guys. Most people wind up on my YouTube channel, which is uh, youtube.com forward slash Jonathan Young Music. Otherwise, just Google Jonathan Young Music. Twitter at Jonathan Y Music. Instagram at Jonathan Y Music. Hopefully you'll be finding me uh, in some other places soon. But yeah, I'm, I'm very humbled and flattered to be on this podcast with you guys. And uh, fuck yeah. Fuck yeah.
2: Fuck yeah. It was
1: so great having you here. Thank you
2: for taking the time.
1: I'm very stoked. I'm very stoked that you guys uh, brought me in on this. Super good time.
0: Everybody listening, hope you're well, taking care of yourselves. Please fucking vote. Go vote. Yes. Register to vote. Vote early. Please, God. Please, please, God.
2: Just to interject, vote for Biden. Yeah, (laughs) to be clear, vote for Biden. What are you doing? Yeah. Vote for Biden. Yeah.
0: Yeah, it's uh, not a question. Fucking do it. You have a civic duty to do so. And so much hangs in the balance here. So uh, maybe said to vote.
1: And we know that he's not perfect, but that's (laughs) what we've
2: got. Yeah, yeah. Well, they say good is the enemy of great. I think what we really mean here is that decent is the rightful enemy of abhorrent. And that's what we're, we're going for decent, yeah, not perfect. We got to make some baby steps. Yeah. I thought you were about to say, we got to make some babies. And I was like, now that's how we end a podcast.
0: Now that's a message. <laughs> yeah. Go make some babies. <laughs> that's the end of the podcast. Goodbye. Bye. Bye.
2: Late Night is produced by Brian Wet, Leighton Gray, and Jarek Centeno. Follow us on Twitter at Leighton Knight, on Instagram at Leighton underscore night, or email us at LeightonKnight at gmail.com.